I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. It's a beautiful day in Sydney. I'm down at Bondi Beach uh, at Bill's Cafe and I'm joined with Martin Lindstrom. Martin, it's great to see you. Yeah, likewise. I haven't seen you for ages. <laughs> you know, I, I completely failed to uh, track you down and meet up with you more in New York, but I knew, I had, I had this feeling that you'd be hanging around in Australia uh, around summertime. Well, listen, you would be stupid if you don't go to the other side of the world to enjoy <laughs> the sun when you know it's there and it's snowing and it's miserable in the rest of the world. So yeah, it's uh, my choice. We've, we've spoken together a number of times. I think the last time we spoke together was in Mexico City. Yeah, uh, but I actually remember you from years ago in the, in the mid '90s when you were the the rock star digital guru at um, I think it was Zevo was the company. was that really I yeah was I didn't remember yeah. that yeah okay and, and so uh, so I know you've been yeah. you've been thinking about these I guess these questions for pretty much longer than anybody else. Well, I think I think what I've tried to do is always to to combine two ordinary things in a new way. So my platform began, as you may recall, when I was 12, where I was into branding already at that stage. And then I said, well, what's the next thing going to be? And I thought, oh, next thing is going to be digital, digital and branding. So in 1994, I sort of said, I think that's going to be the future brands on the Internet. It sounded crazy back then, <laughs> but it turned out to be real. And, and then later on, I said, kids and branding and that became brand child and then I said the census and branding and that became brand sense and then I said neuroscience and branding and became neuromarketing so really what I try to do throughout my career is not to stand still but to basically constantly combine new ways of thinking into an old an old way of thinking and then mix it up in an untraditional way and that has led basically that's led my life I mean branding is such a timeless uh, challenge it is. Uh, for people but I guess what you've done is looked for these vectors or these transforming forces yeah. that, that have, uh, I think every few years, forces to reevaluate the yeah. way we look at this time and Yeah, they do. And I think, I think we're getting to the point right now in our world where uh, we are so overloaded loaded with information that we, we sort of are confused about where things are going. And I think that's where you and I have a role to cut through the clutter and say to people, hey guys... You are confused, but there's a couple of directions which are pretty clear. And because we have, I think, and I hope, enough experience to to sort of take all this information on board and cut it out and say, this is what I feel is the right direction. When we got to that point and we can share with other people, I think it becomes incredibly beneficial for the world to learn on. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. I really try to create a pathway when there's a lot of mess around us. If you're a marketer today, I think it's never been more difficult in the sense that as human beings, we're inundated and surrounded by all forms of stimulation and distraction, let alone brand messages. So why is it that some brands manage to cut through to the subconscious uh, and others we just barely pay attention to? Well, it comes down to the individuals at the organization and it comes down to, in, in principle, the leader giving enough space to individuals to show courage and I think the problem is today that a lot of individuals at bigger corporations are afraid of losing their job so what they do is they make safe decisions they follow everyone else in the industry because you won't be fired just in the old days people said you won't be fired to have an IBM solution installed 
Well, now you won't be fired if you have a social media strategy which is with the usual bells and whistles attached to it. But very few leaders today do two things. Very few are saying, one, um, I want to employ people which follow their instincts. I don't want people who are following reports and numbers. Yes, reports and numbers are great, but that can kind of be done with everyone and by everyone. And the second thing is to have the courage to mix it up with unusual talents so you constantly are receiving fresh input into the organization. Quite often when you become insecure as a leader, you say, well, I want to have the cookie-cutter MBAs in joining my organization and I want to have uh, all the usual people with the usual skill sets. And guess what? You're just replicating the skill set you have already. And that's great right now in 2016, but it's not great 2019. And that's what we have to prepare for right now. There is some science behind this, isn't there? I mean, as humans, we, we, we actually become, in a sense, inoculated against stuff yeah. we've seen before. Yeah. And you did a big study, I recall, where you, I think you surveyed 2,000 people yeah. to actually look at the way their minds responded uh, yeah. under, under MRI. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I well, it was a fascinating piece of work because, uh, first of all, just a big backstory here. Uh, when we started to do this project back in 2005, out of Australia, actually out of Sydney, where we are right now, uh, no one wanted to talk to me. They literally slammed the door in my face and said, I don't want to do uh, Frankenstein's, they said. And I said to them... Did they have visions that you were going to be sticking electrical probes into yeah, people? Yeah, I think, yeah, I actually do think they had that vision. And, and people screaming and, and being radioactive and glowing in the dark and that type of thing. Um, so it took me three years to raise seven and a half million dollars and I literally had to do a deal with most of the sponsors not to disclose their names because no one wanted to be associated with this thing here. Now we managed to raise the seven million dollars. We did this study and I learned a lot from it. Uh, first of all, I learned that um, neuroscience and neuromarketing is not for everyone. It's not like uh, if you want to have the truth uh, and want to figure out the answers to any question you have it's not like you are installing a scanner in people's heads and then you believe the answers there no you can only use neuromarketing for certain very focused uh, purposes right and if you do it right you actually get some amazing results but in 99% of the cases people do it wrong still today I also learned that there is so many questions out there which we still not can answer using neuromarketing and where I constantly was struggling to say what is the answer then and I really wanted neuromarketing to be the answer and I still want to be the answer but it is probably only the answer in 10 or 15% of the cases. I learned a lot about tobacco, and, and I have to say it was a, both a wonderful and scary exercise because... Does it, does it cause cancer? Did you figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the biggest challenges to find out, yeah. No, it's actually interesting you're saying it because my mom died of cancer uh, a couple of years ago, and um, my promise to her was to... Uh, to uh, go against the tobacco industry, which I did. Uh, so uh, um, I literally concluded from the book that this non-conscious manipulation of consumers' minds to make people smoke more when they see the health warnings on the cigarette pack, in fact, has an effect. And so, I, remember, I remember you wrote this, that when people see a cigarette warning, yeah. it actually increases their desire for cigarettes. It does, yeah. Why, why is that? Is it because it speaks to an older part of our brain? It is. No, actually, it's very simple why. It's because the health warnings on the cigarette packs actually, in their own rights, become a logo. And the logo is then associated with craving. And the craving goes into our brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is the craving 
sleeping spot in the brain. So when you see, in back in the past in Australia, when you had these black uh, and white health warnings, you saw that graphic style used, the brain will just create a craving generation, no matter what it would be saying. Hmm. So you would link it together with, with that feeling. And because this happens at a subconscious level, you are rationally not aware of that you're affected by it. So you kind of feel, mm, I feel for a cigarette right now. You don't know why. And because the rational filter is not cutting in, which it would do if it was an ad, because then you would be aware of you're affected, but you're not here. It actually makes you smoke more. So that insight uh, was a little bit of a revolution, and it, it meant that here in Australia we removed basically all the design on the cigarette pack. We did that in Canada, around the world. It's introduced in Europe now. We had a huge campaign in in uh, US and I also made Marlboro suffer a lot because we managed to stop their 120 million dollar sponsorship of Ferrari in Formula One from 2009 that stopped because we could prove using Neuromartin that it actually had an official uh, effect against uh, making people smoke more even though it's banned to advertise for smoking at the Formula One. So it had an effect and I was proud of that. Um, So on one hand, yes, it had a personal I had a personal objective. On the other hand, from a commercial point of view, building brands, I learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work, which I think is okay to use when you're building brands like Lego and Google and whatever, right? Right. Um, I, I guess hooking a consumers up to an fMRI machine is, the, is kind of the marketing equivalent of building a Hadron Super Collider. It is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think one of the curious things in your, in your next book that you, that's about to come out, uh, Small Data, You've almost gone the the other direction, uh, which is yeah. thinking more small scale about almost anthropology, right? It is. It is anthropology, and and it is uh, it is the whole idea about the fact that human beings are wonderful and crazy and creative. And the only way you really, really can understand people is not by reading reports and going into your screen and looking at millions and billions of data points which today is the claim from big data, but it's actually to go to the opposite uh, direction. And I think the best case in point is really uh, when Lego back in 2002, in fact, um, were almost going broke. And through the process, they concluded that based on big data, that uh, the instant gratification generation had arrived and that they wouldn't have time and energy to build the Lego bricks anymore. So they had to change the size of the Lego bricks. Right. So they changed it from these tiny Lego bricks to huge, gigantic building blocks and reduced the numbers of bricks in a, in a box from 1,000 to perhaps 70. And yes, the building time was going down to, I mean, one-fifth of what it should be. And guess what? The sales went down as well. <laughs> So in 2002, they really had a problem because on one hand, they knew there was a change ahead of them. On the other hand, they had no answers to it. And that was the moment where the idea of small data really arrived. Because in a home of a, a random consumer in Germany, an 11-year-old kid's home, this Lego crew goes into the home and they ask this kid, what is your favorite toy? What's your favorite thing in this room? And he points at the shelf, and there's this old worn-down sneaker standing on the shelves. And saying, this is the one. And they say, why? And he's saying, well, because it has a special wear-down sole. The sole is sort of worn down at a degree of 12 and a half on the side of this rubber thing. And that means that I am the best skater in town. Ah. Because this kid was a skater, and as he slid down the skateboard, he would create these marks on this uh, sneaker, and that became his trophy. 
And uh, as a reflection of that, Lego really had a wake-up call because they realized if you really want to create um, toys and entertainment for kids, the instant gratification generation doesn't exist as long as you put the kid in the leadership in the leadership seat. And if the kid feel that he or she is driving the race, they will spend thousands of hours of creating new ideas. But, but this sneaker was social proof, right? It was a social proof of it, and it was really small data. Oh. And and that small data inside really uh, meant that Lego changed the entire strategy, decreased the size of the Lego brick to tiny bricks, and introduced the idea of the Lego movie. Because then you are giving kids the emotional uh, tool to create a storyline around their world and therefore they're in the driver's seat right. and suddenly they have thousands of hours. Which is why Minecraft has been popular as it well. It is, yeah. It's and not so much as a digital brick, but no. it gives them the ability to tell stories on yeah. a new platform. Exactly, it does. So small data is really what I call seemingly insignificant uh, observation, consumer observation, which at first seems ridiculous. But when you start to combine all those dots and draw a line in between them, you suddenly realize the correlation, right. and then you can do the correlation with this big data. People who love data do the opposite. Uh, they make the classic mistake of looking for correlations in mm. data mm. without the experience and judgment or the intuition yeah. to actually know what's causing them. Yeah, exactly. And, and it is a problem. I think best case here is, is Google, which in 2012 were, and I'm sure you remember this case, were predicting the flu outbreak in the uh, US yes. five days before it was happening. And it was a revolution. I mean, the Center for Disease Control announced that they would warn all the pediatricians and doctors across the U.S. to order the products in advance now because you could really predict when people were having this flu. And then, surprisingly, just a couple of months ago, uh, again, the Center for Disease Control announced that Google were wrong. In fact, the numbers were two <laughs> times what they should have been. So why is that? Because people were typing in flu on on Google, and then the neighbor would say, you're typing in flu? I want to type that in too. That's <laughs> all you had. Another factor, the human factor kicking in, which is exactly what Google has struggled with with the, the driverless car, where... Um, as you know, two or three car accidents were not due to the machines, it was due to the human beings because suddenly you know, one person wanted to drive ahead and this automated Google car stops because it waits for the driver to go over but the driver is waiting for that to go over and, and suddenly the, the driver gets insane of this stupid car right? and then goes ahead and the computer can't calculate that small data. right? So, so what we've learned is the small data is the last factor which are creating a huge difference because it is in many ways the tipping point. The problem is today that, and, and you do a lot of speaking, but you will notice that when you speak around the world, you have this bingo of big data references. I mean, every conference there's at least 50 references to big data, right? And it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy to use the word and suddenly it becomes a fashionable term to use at the board meetings and we want to have another big data strategy here type of phenomenon and you end up in a situation where one installs this thing and it becomes this driverless car which have no really direction because there is no causation. Or, or worse, it becomes totalitarian. Uh, it does, and that, that can be even worse because it makes the organization believe that they are in control of things and actually are slowly removed from reality. Yes, so and removing themselves from the consumer's real reality. Yeah, and, and that's, that's really what's so close to my heart because I do feel that we have been detached and continues to be detached from human beings and from emotions. I mean... 
when did you touch a person the last time? And the first thing people do when they wake up in the morning is to touch the iPhone. Uh, we are constantly lacking transformation in our lives. There is no transformation from the moment you wake up to when you go to bed. Uh, the senses are caught away when you sit at home. The communities are online, but there's a decreasing number of communities offline. People feel that emptiness. Uh, so what I think is going to happen now is the human factor will dial up. And small data is really my my attempt to brand something which so far has not been very popular by the board because you couldn't put billions of data behind it it's actually based on intuition but but how is this different from focus groups uh, i mean companies have always done focus groups and they've generally been very biased and used yeah. to justify whatever agenda that yeah. who was running it but you're talking about something slightly different here though aren't you? well in many ways small data is is uh, an observation you do in private homes like a fly on the wall. Okay, so it's, it's more observational as it's opposed to a staging of fake... Completely uh, observational and, and it, oh, sometimes you do go in interaction with consumers. So the last uh, 10 years I spent at least, I visited at least 2,000 consumers' homes across 77 countries. I actually read, you, you read somewhere that you said you've slept with 1,000 consumers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I get paid yeah, for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But you know, and, and it's true. And now I literally you, have you mean something different by that I have to tell you the truth but don't tell it to anyone here that my my right hand uh, he actually did an, a, a consumer inside interview uh, for one of our clients in Brazil and fell in love with this young girl in Rio de Janeiro and they're being married this November no. so um, we are sleeping with the consumers or at least he is right now. but no the reality here is we are we're observing consumers a lot and um, as you look at certain clues in a homes the way people decorate the homes the way they sit the way they articulate things the way they pack the fridges what's in the in the cupboard all that stuff you suddenly, and it's amazing, you suddenly realize how all these small clues, all these small data, really are telling an incredible story about the person and the person not even aware of it. That's yeah. what's so fascinating, right? Have you ever, like, literally dragged the board or the leadership team out of their offices yeah, into I have. the homes? Yeah, I have. Is I, it like kind of a, an awakening? It is completely. I mean, it is, it's a big thing for many organizations. I've done it a lot with Nestle, and, and I, I literally said to huge parts of the Nestle organization they had to spend two days a year in the homes of consumers, which they've done. And it really is a wake-up call, because if you are an organization which has been around for hundreds of years, no matter how good you are, you lose contact with reality, because you fundamentally believe you asked all questions, and you have all answers. Um, but the consumer evolves, and you suddenly also realize that so does the staff, and one day if you can put people into the situation of living in the feet of the consumer they will wake up and I think the best example of that is really what I did with the British um, uh, it's called SAG it's an organization which is like AARP in the US which is for seniors over 70 or 50s um, and they have um, these cruise liners and whatever and yeah. uh, I was asked to redesign one of the cruise ships for them um, and I said to them, hey, why don't we do a trick here? So I asked them to, uh, to dress up, to put on almost like a spacesuit, to have extra aluminium built into the shoes, to have big, thick gloves on where you can hardly press a button with it, thick glasses, earplugs in it. And then I asked them to board the, 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 the ship. 
and they could hardly <laughs> walk on the bottom of the ship. And I asked them to go to the second floor. They could, couldn't press the elevator bottom. They couldn't see anything. And when they could see, they couldn't press it because the thing was, was so thick. They couldn't walk up the staircases. And, and after two days, you know, a lot of these people gave up. And I said to them, this is how it feels like being 79 for many people. And you need to live it from a consumer's point of view. And that wake-up call is what I'm trying to give at least my clients around the world. And time after time, the smallest insignificant insight certainly turns out to be a revolution in that category. And that's really the foundation for small data. Yes, it makes sense. And, and uh, it, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way because we, we live in a world where we collect so much data. It's yeah. seductive to think that the answers are there. Yeah, it is. But do, do you think that we're at this interesting tipping point with people wearing wearables and... Um, being able to track the emotional responses of people at a very individual level that brands will be able to start to personalize their experiences based on that individual data as well well yeah there's no doubt about it It will happen and it is happening right now I know that for a fact because so you're saying the design of it has to be driven from a very human inside it has you see we we as human beings are also very lazy so as soon as we think we've gathered that pattern we I know the trick now I have the formula here we start to replicate things right we jump over where the fence is at the lowest point and that's where it starts to be dangerous uh, so I think in the end of the day where small data is different is that you constantly need to check in with the reality because the reality ch- changes as technology changes. Yeah. It's not static here. Um, so yes, we will definitely see that brands will become super customized. Um, the problem you will also see happening is that the authenticity will start to be in question in everything. And I define uh, authenticity based on four different factors. It has to be real, it has to be relevant, it has to be part of a recital, so part of a storyline, and it has to be part of a ritual. And um, you will notice that most brands... Assume Sounds a bit like a religion. It is a religion. It's actually a philosophy I, I invented for, for one of my books, which is called Religious Branding, and where we did again a neuro study on what is uh, developing powerful religions around the world. And it was very clear for me that authenticity and this is back in 2006 but authenticity will drive every brand in the future right and i realized very quickly that as soon as you put things on auto control or autopilot uh, the authenticity is fading away slowly so how do you maintain that authenticity well i think you do that by uh, literally um, checking in with the consumer every day and that's back to the small data thing because small data is basically saying to you, hey, you can do so much on autopilot, but you actually need to live with the consumer quite often at the same time. It's that fine, complex situation, right? If you're a, a lot of companies now are talking about transformation. Yeah. So you know, whether you're a big traditional bank or a telco or a retailer, they're facing um, innovators in their market that yeah. are disrupting things. So they go into their product and brand marketing teams and say, listen, we need to talk to consumers in a new way. Yeah. If you're a big company, how do you uh, rebrand yourself when what's changing is not so much the brand, but the way people are doing things? Well, I think there's three things I would do. First of all, let's say you are a bank. I would use the classic technique of saying, well, what would happen to your bank if it was purchased by Apple? And, and Apple would now be in control of the entire bank and redesign the whole bank. And I think the answer would be, oh, gee, well, that's a different ball game. Certainly people will say, and they say, well, it'll be more simple, that's for sure. And they'll say, it will be faster, and it will be nicer looking, and certainly they will be able to sort of brand up you know, 20 points. And then I'll say to them, well, why don't you do it? Right? What, what, what? Is it almost like you 
you've been forced or you have a rule saying you can't be innovative, you can't be fast, you, you can't right. be simple. So I think the first thing you need to do is to change the glasses of the wearer, the person who are working in the organization and give them a mandate or a permission to look at the world from a different point of view. Now that's what I did with Sage putting on a uniform on people but it's also what you can do by saying to people look at your brand from another brand's point of view not your competitor but a player completely outside your industry right so that will be the first thing the second thing will be to say uh, you guys need to collaborate across the organization and you can't work in silos the world does not work in silos anymore because everything is fluent you can't sort of say Uh, if you are responsible for the brand of the airline company and you sort of say, uh, well, what about the catering food? Well, that's not me. What about the design of the airplane? Well, that's operation. Uh, Because the consumer's experience is <laughs> one, one big thing, right? So you can't work in silos, and most of the organizations are operating in silos today. So what you have to do is to do job rotations. And you basically do that by taking every key responsible person in the organization into one room and saying, hey, now we're going to talk about brands. Now, that sounds easy. It's not. It's not easy because people in branding do not, or marketing or advertising, do not have enough respect to attract the other people to attend that meeting, <laughs> um, unfortunately. And second, uh, what do you do once you have that decision? Well, what you do then is to mix responsibilities. And some of the most successful brand turnarounds, or, or transformational turnarounds I made around the world was literally where the head of finance actually was running it uh, or a person from HR were running it but not for marketing right. because if you take people outside the comfort zone they again have a permission to be different or else they'll go into the usual track and basically do what they've always done so that would be the second thing and the third thing will be to move in with the consumer and basically ask the consumer to be at the driver's seat and and I did that once long time ago with MTV where we basically replicated the whole bedroom and put it inside a conference hall with the real teens living there in that bedroom and they could sort of see how they're living um, but you can do it even more you can basically say in the future uh, we all of us in the organization needs to check in with real consumers twice a year it's a rule just like it's a rule that you have a Christmas party How do you scale those check-ins? Do you do it individually? Uh, no. You, you, or do you get someone, basically uh, ethnologists, you know, to kind of observe? You do it via train the trainers. So first of all, you need to have an onboarding program where it becomes standard for everyone to live at a consumer's home the two first days they're starting at the company. Because then you set a, you set a tone of voice. You're basically right. saying to people, we live by the consumer's mindset. We don't live by a factory's mindset. The second thing you do is that you you train uh, 10 or 15 people at how to observe and how to ask the right questions and how to conclude the right conclusions based on observation in the consumer's home, based on those small data. You basically train them. And once you train them, once I'm training them with our team, then you let them go inside the organization. And that becomes a philosophy with a sort of cascading as a domino right. effect. And yes, it have, you, have you seen any organizations really systematize this? Absolutely. And so we're developing small data departments in a range of different organizations. One of them is, is Lowe's in, in the United States. Oh, right. Uh, the hardware store. Yeah, no, actually the supermarket part, the supermarket oh. chain. And, and, and Lowe's uh, today have a small data department and they are training every single person joining the organization in how to live in a consumer's home and pick up small data. And so yes, uh, it's happening. 
and I would claim that just as you today have a big data mining department, you will in the future have a small data department. You know, just just to I guess end this off. Uh, when you first started your career, there was so much optimism and creativity about how the new digital platform would allow yeah. us to be more personal and interactive. Yeah. And it's just weird. Like twenty years later, I feel like we're just you know doing the same kind of broadcast advertising yeah. on, on on these new digital platforms. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, what do you think needs to change for us to really? Well, I think I think uh, the advertising agencies has to close down all of them. If right. you ask me, because they are dinosaurs belonging to the past, in, in my opinion, I said that for many years, you know, and 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 I'll tell you why. The problem is advertising agencies have a, a fixed revenue model, which they which they addicted to, and and their model is they're getting a kickback from media spend. Well, what do you do when you run influencers home programs where you are? basically basing everything on making influencers talk to other influencers and there is no media spend it's in a different opposite world of how you're using money what do you do then how do you feed the creatives how do you feed the machine in an advertising agency you don't so the problem with an advertising agency is that if, if you sell hammers everything looks like nails and they are selling nails right now uh, so I think advertising agencies need to close down and then they need to reopen again and they need to say to themselves, everything we learned is out of the window. Now we start all over again with one simple philosophy to get closer to the consumer. And then it may be the mix, the huge mix we have of media channels today will need to be completely reshuffled rather than working with banner ads you know, and that type of stuff which you and I were selling back to 20 years ago or something like right? when flash banner ads were like the sexy new thing. Yeah, I know. Actually, I have to, I have to be really, really honest with you. I never sold banner ads uh, because I fundamentally believe it was like a slideshow in the cinema. You know about these yeah. slideshow. But I have to say that I'm completely surprised about that the evolution of the internet has, in the, from an advertising point of view, has been so slow. Yeah. As quick as it's been with the Ubers of the world and the Airbnb and all that stuff, as slow the advertising part has been. And that is going to change. There will be a new Uber of the world in the advertising space, which will wipe out the entire advertising industry, and it's going to happen soon. Martin, uh, these are big thoughts and big <laughs> ideas for a beautiful day in Sydney. It's been great seeing you. Yeah, likewise. And I uh, hope to uh, run into you on the road again. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much. Pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.